Today's sermon text is Luke 1, verses 39 through 56. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leapt in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her for about three months and returned to her home. This is God's word. Good morning, everybody. It's good to see you today. I'm Chris Bennett, the uh, lead pastor here. And um, we are launching into uh, week one of a four-week series uh, uh, for the season of Advent. And uh, one of the things I'm really looking forward to is you notice one of the candles that are lit today. Uh, I'm looking forward to tonight, um, every, every um, Christmas season, my wife and I and our kids, we gather around and go to our dining room table where we have our Advent wreath, and we light a candle, and usually they're fighting over who gets to light it, and then they fight over who gets to, to blow it out. And, um, um, but we have a time where we just follow the church's devotional, and I want to thank my friend Elliot Grudem in Raleigh, North Carolina. He wrote the devotional that you saw on the screen that we're using and is allowing us to use it again for the second year in a row. And um, I, follow, I just open up our, our app on my phone or my iPad and find that day's devotional. And then I um, read that with our kids, and we say a prayer, we worship together, and then we're done. And it's short, usually, and it's sweet. Um, sometimes my kids ask incredible questions, and it just becomes a really interesting and intriguing evening. And um, other times... It's a little dull, and that's okay. But uh, we light that candle, and we continue to do that. And then, of course, on Christmas morning, we do the final devotional. And uh, ideally, we would like to do that before gifts, but it just does not work at my house. And so uh, at some point during that morning, we gather around the dining room table, and we will do that that Christmas Day Advent devotional. And it's just, it's a really, really sweet time. There's nothing magical about a candle, nothing at all. It's just an emblem that brings a little bit more se- a sense of sacredness to that, to that time. Uh, you can use the candle or not. You can follow a devotional or not. It's just a tool to help stimulate a little more interest in the things of the kingdom when we are living in the rut uh, of every day. So um, I hope you'll participate in it. It's a lot of fun. It's really rich. Um, so I've got the opportunity to kick off for the next few minutes um, our first message um, 
in the waiting. Um, I wanted to make sure I called it the right name because I think every week during the Proverbs series, I called it the wrong name, which many of you reminded me of via text message every Sunday afternoon. So um, uh, with a little ha 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 or the happy face or something like that. So uh, or the face that goes like this, you know, uh, that one. Uh, so um, yeah, Anyway, so somebody, somebody showed me a picture recently they took of me while I was preaching, and I was pretty embarrassed about that picture, the expression I was making in my face. So I was just imagining that happening again, a little PTSD up here. Um, so about a thousand years before Jesus was born, there was another young boy who was born, and his name was Samuel. His name was Samuel. Um, s- kind of similar circumstances, both miraculous pregnancies. Um, we know about Jesus' virgin birth pregnancy where Mary is this obscure girl, uh, maybe middle to upper teenager, and uh, history was ready to forget all about Mary. And God points her out and says, I want you, not based on any merit of your own, but because I am choosing to use you to advance my kingdom and my glory in all of this earth. He chose this little peasant girl. And she had never known a man. She was engaged to be married. Um, But God, in his glorious power, visited her little womb, her little virgin womb. And in that womb planted the seed of the Son of God, who grew in her and who was born and who changed the world. Um, A thousand years earlier, there was another gal. Her name was Hannah. And Hannah was married to a man named Elkanah. And this was, a, this was an interesting time in Israel's history. This was a time when there was no central government. There was no king or head prophet, so to speak. It, people were just sort of doing what was right in their own eyes. That's what the book of Judges says about this time. And this man, Elkanah, who was living in Israel at a time when, when Jewish culture or Hebrew culture was was um, becoming part of also pagan culture in that part of the world. And so he was sort of finding his way in God the best that he knew how to do, which probably explains why he had two wives. And uh, so Elkanah, every year he would leave and he would travel to a place called Shiloh. And it was at Shiloh, that's where the Ark of the Covenant was kept at the time, the place where God's presence would manifest. And it was at Shiloh that Elkanah would go and he would make sacrifices. And then he, after making these sacrifices, he would bring home a portion of that sacrifice to one of his wives, Peninnah. Now, Peninnah was, had a mean streak inside of her. Uh, Peninnah had, had kids. Um, Hannah, his other wife, could not have children. What made things worse for Hannah was that whenever he would leave and go make these sacrifices and then return and bring a portion to Peninnah, his wife, so that she could share with her children, he would give a double portion to his wife who had no children. Now, this was important because back then they didn't have, you know, Apple TVs and big screen TVs and stuff like that. I mean, they had food. That's all they had and and a little place to live. And so to give um, edible things, livestock to your family was, was, it's very, very valuable. And so this drew the ire of Peninnah, who resented Hannah very much. She had everything that Hannah wanted. The ability to have a child, which in that culture was considered a blessing. 
And yet, she knew that her husband, Elkanah, preferred Hannah over her. And so she was jealous of Hannah. And whenever Elkanah would leave, she would ridicule Hannah mercilessly. Mercilessly. And there was one time when Elkanah was away um, that... Um, actually, when Hannah, Hannah, was with, Hannah was at the temple worshiping, that she was crying, and this high priest there named Eli, he saw her praying and saw how shaken up she was. For some, somehow she behaved in such a bizarre sense that he thought that she was drunk, and she said, no, my Lord, I'm just broken in spirit. And she told him what was going on in her life, and, and he blessed her. And pretty soon after that, God opened her womb and she was allowed to have a child. And she had the boy who would become known as later on as the prophet Samuel. And it was during this time that she, when she prayed and was believing God for her womb to be opened, that she said to God, she made an oath. She said, God, if you open my womb, I will dedicate this child to you all the days of his life. And wouldn't you know it, after a brief relatively speaking, time of weaning, when you get a child to a place where they no longer are dependent on their mother's milk. It could be 15 months. It could be five years. We, we don't really know back then. Every family did it their own way, as, as I understand. So sometime, probably around three or four years old, maybe two years old, she makes the trip to Shiloh and presents her precious little son to Eli the priest to raise this boy, in the temple. And after that, every year, she would pilgrimage to the temple where she had made a little linen ephod, because that's what people in the priestly role would wear. And she would give this little linen ephod. She would present it to her boy, and he would wear that linen ephod for that year, and he would outgrow it. And the next year, she would come back and bring him another linen ephod. And every year, she did this for her son. And it was during this time that Samuel, as he was growing older, was laying on his bed one evening... Um, and he heard the Lord speak to him. He didn't know it was the Lord. He thought it was Eli. He heard the word Samuel. So he got up out of his bed, went to Eli, and Eli said, boy, I don't know what you're talking about. Go to bed. So he sends him to bed. Happens again. Same thing. Go back to bed. It happens a third time, and this time the voice said, Samuel, Samuel. And Eli finally clued in and recognized God is speaking to you. And Samuel went back to his bed, and God gave him a very disturbing and troubling word to deliver to Eli. And the word had, had a lot to do with the behavior of his sons. You see, Eli had two sons. Their, their names were Hophni and Phinehas. And the scriptures are clear. I think it's First Samuel 3 that it says the word of God was rare in those days. And Hophni and Phinehas, serving in the priesthood, would mishandle sacrifices that people brought. They would eat portions they shouldn't eat. They demanded that people prepare their sacrifices in a way that violated Scripture, that violated God's Word. And to top it all off, these boys, these priests, who were intended to shepherd and pastor the, pastor the people of Israel, they would have sex with women who would come to bring their sacrifices to the temple. And God told Samuel, that you are to tell Eli that because of his sons and their rebellion and their sin, um, the priesthood is going to forever be taken away from his line. 
And rather, I'm going to replace his priesthood with another kind of priesthood that will forever lead the people of Israel. We know that now as the line of Jesus. King David, and then hundreds of years later, the Messiah, Jesus. And that happened. God killed Eli's sons in battle. Eli had a terrible accident where he collapsed and he was killed. And um, everything changed after that. Um, this This happens in a context that's really, really interesting. And I wanted to share with you guys. And my goal in sharing this next segment with you is because I have a deep conviction through observing people that I pastor. No judgment, but I have to assess what I think are your needs as God's people. And one of the needs that I think we have, not just our church, but really the church across the board in Western civilization, is we've, we don't know God's word anymore. We don't know how it works. We don't know what to do with it. This is why I took some time. I went through the pains of explaining our heritage in the series that we did on Proverbs when I talked about Abraham's offspring and how we fit into that. And so what I want to do is spend a few minutes talking through um, the story of God from Genesis all the way through 1 Samuel. So I've got a slide. Uh, the first slide is Genesis, the book of the Bible called Genesis. You would hope, I hope you would all agree that Genesis is the very first book of our Bible. Um, you might be using a different kind of Bible, but the Christian, the Christian Bible, the first book of our Bible is Genesis. And basically, basically the story of Genesis is this. Mankind has descended into sin and civilization is in chaos. And so God identifies a certain person that he's going to choose named Abraham, Abram at the time. And he is going to raise up a new family or a new nation or a new ethnic group as, uh, uh, as, um, Nathan pointed out a minute ago. And so, um, so he finds a Nick, Nick. So I'm thinking of Nathan, the prophet and I also just met him two weeks ago. So, um, so you've got the book of Genesis, and in the book of Genesis, you've got Abraham, and then his son Isaac, and then his son Jacob. And God identifies this family, this particular family, he's going to use to start a whole new lineage of godly offspring that are going to bring the gospel to all the earth. Okay, after the book of Genesis are the books of Exodus all the way through Deuteronomy. And the main character in Exodus all the way through Deuteronomy, is Moses. This exodus happens 400 years after Genesis. The people that were in Genesis, Abraham's family, they've all been enslaved in Egypt, and it's in Egypt that God raises up Moses to lead them out of captivity into the wilderness to worship, where God begins to shape them as his peculiar people and holy nation. And so that's what happens in Exodus all the way through Deuteronomy. But God won't allow Moses to lead the people of God into the promised land. And so that brings us to the next book called Joshua. Anybody want to guess who the main character is in the book of Joshua? I'll give you one guess. Joshua. That's exactly right. And Joshua, his responsibility is to lead Israel from the wilderness into the promised land, to conquer the promised land, and to drive out all of those who are pagans and who don't worship God. And that land is the land that belongs to the nation of Israel. This is God's land, okay? And so that's Joshua. And then we go along to the next book. And the next book is a book called Judges. 
And the reason it's called Judges is because it's during this time that Israel has no central government after Joshua. There's no central government. All the tribes of Israel have their own leaders and chieftains, and there, but there are 15, maybe 14, because that guy named Abimelech, it's hard to decide if he was a good dude or not. And so there's 15 people, maybe 14, that God raises up over almost a 400-year period to save and restore Israel. Because Israel, they didn't drive out their enemies like they should have. And they began to intermarry with the Canaanites. And all of a sudden, the Mosaic law and the Jewish religion began to become part of all of the traditions of the pagans in that area. And so God had to raise up judges who would come to Israel, who would rebuke them, call them to repentance. But also these chieftains were military leaders and they would drive out the people and the nations who were terrorizing the nation of Israel. That's what all of these 15 guys, maybe you know some of them, like Gideon or Samson, God raised them up. I have Samuel in there because, although I'm not sure Samuel was actually a judge, the last guy who's known as a judge in Judges is a guy named Eli, the guy that we just talked about. And then God raises up in last slide. I want to help you see this all at a glance. Sorry, sorry. Before the last slide, I did this in the first service. God raises up Samuel, and that leads us into the next two books of the Bible, First and Second Samuel. Er, wait a second. What about that little book called Ruth that comes after Judges? The book of Ruth is like a vignette. It's a picture of a righteous family in the time of the judges to show you that there were godly people who were living at a time of great chaos and great rebellion. And what judges says is God's people did what they wanted to do, what they thought was right in their own eyes. And so you've got Ruth after judges, but the story advances in first and second Samuel, where in those two books, Samuel anoints two of Israel's first two kings, Saul and then David. And then after David comes, Solomon, and for about a 40-year period, that was Israel's golden age. And so in this period of kings, there's a central government. It becomes less and less chaotic. For uh, about 80 years, God is using Saul and David to extinguish paganism. And then finally, after David uh, leaves the throne and Solomon ascends the throne, Israel is at peace. Samuel, as you'll see in the last slide now, is the link, on the last slide right now, is the link between the time of the judges where Israel was in total chaos and they were led by these tribal chieftains and everybody did what was right in their own eyes. Samuel's the link between that time of the judges to First and Second Samuel, the time of the kings, when Israel finds itself. This is what Samuel did. This is significant because when Jesus was born, Jesus was born in a time similar to that, not identical, but similar to that, that Samuel walked into. Jesus was born in a time where Israel had lost its way. A time where the word of God was rare in those days. It had been four centuries since a prophet spoke in Israel until John the Baptist arrived. Now, what's interesting about this is that when you get to Mary's prayer in Luke chapter 1, it sounds a lot like a prayer that Hannah prayed when she was at the temple and she said, God, please give me a child. She goes back home, Hannah does. She gets pregnant. She has this baby. And then Hannah says in 1 Samuel chapter 2, she gives this song of praise 
that has become the core prayer in all of Jewish culture. It's a prayer that is prayed every Jewish New Year. It's a prayer that is repeated throughout synagogues all over the world. And it's a prayer that Mary would have heard over and over and over and over again. I don't have time to read that prayer today, but you can see how Mary imprinted on this prayer when you do just a quick comparison between Mary's prayer and Hannah's prayer. For instance, uh, I've got a slide for this. There we go. Uh, in in um, verse 1 of 1 Samuel 2, Hannah says, My heart exalts in the Lord. I rejoice in your salvation. Mary says, My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Hannah says in verse 2 of 1 Samuel 2, There is none holy like the Lord. Mary uh, continues, holy is his name. Hannah, going back to Hannah, the bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble gird on strength. Mary then says, he has put down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of low degree. Hannah says this, those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. Mary says, he has filled the hungry with good things and the rich He is sent away empty. Why was Mary able to do this? There are some theologians out there who oftentimes don't subscribe to Scripture as being the Word of God, who just study God's Word, who would say, there's no way Mary could have said the prayer that she said. She was too simple. This is too sophisticated. It's way over her head, which is incredible that somebody would even suggest that because Mary was nurtured. And immersed in a culture where this prayer was repeated over and over and over and over again. Where she prayed the Psalms and heard her rabbis praying the Psalms. And grew up in a family where they would gather around table and they would repeat Psalms and different prayers throughout Scripture. This is why when you read Mary's prayer, if you have any kind of a reference Bible any kind of like margin down the middle or the side or at the bottom of your page, you can look at all of the scriptural references to the Old Testament that Mary's prayer makes. It's because she was nurtured in God's Word. And here's what's amazing. Because Mary was nurtured in God's Word, when God said to her, hey, my paraphrase, you're a teenager, you're pregnant, you're blessed. She could actually hear that through the terror through the fear of being looked at by her community as being um, not above reproach, she could embrace that and say, may it be according to me, may it be to me according to your word. And she's able to say when she's around her cousin Elizabeth, when Elizabeth says, I'm pregnant too, it's impossible that I'm pregnant because I can't have kids and the baby that's growing inside of her is John the Baptist. And when Mary walks in the room, John the Baptist jumps inside of her womb and then Mary praises and then Elizabeth says something and then Mary praises and they have like their, I think the first church service. You got two or two, two or three gathered, two were gathered. Jesus is there in the midst of them and they're being edified by the Holy Spirit. It's incredible what's happening. I think that's actually, you could, you could say that's the first church service. Um, the point is, is that Mary was so immersed in God's word, so immersed in God's word that when God brought a test to her, and a stewardship to her that was frightening and heavy. She did not run in terror, but she was able to embrace it. 
she was able to see her identity rooted in the people of Israel and how she was blessed by God to advance the move of God throughout history. This is something that is close to my heart of desire that I have dearly because I truly believe one of the reasons why I did that Genesis through first and second Samuel thing is because we're not immersed in God's word. We brush up against it and we wonder why at times when trials come our way, we are completely freaking out. I put myself in that category too at times. We must be nurtured by God's word. And so implicitly, implicitly, before you even try to interpret what Mary's saying, implicitly, I think there is an expectation put on all of God's people. Know my word. Be in my word. Speaking for God. Love his word. Give yourself to his word. Don't skip Sundays next year. Don't skip them. Be a part of what we're doing. Take notes in services. Track what you're learning. Keep your mind awake during messages that may, not, that may be sleepy. Be a part of God's word. Do a Bible reading plan. Do something to give yourself to God's word every single day to be nourished in God's word. If you're a member of this church or if you consider this church your home base, then root yourself in a community of believers. Join a community group. It's so easy. Just walk to that back table and say, I want to join a community group. Can you help me find one that fits my family or fits, fits me? Absolutely. We'll, we'll, we'll be happy to do that. Be a part of this. I want to finish up today by saying a few things about some of the things that Mary says in her prophecy. Yes, we're going to go a few minutes over. I thought it was important to hear from uh, Nick, not Nathan, and, and Haley today. So, um, so in, in Mary says this. Basically, this, this is what Mary is saying when she magnifies the Lord, when she finds out that the Savior is growing in her womb. She says these words. My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold... From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me and his holy name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Just a couple of things we can glean from this first few verses. God is holy. Amen? Amen means so be it. And it's kind of weird to say so be it in church services. So amen sounds a little better. So God is holy. Amen? Amen. You can say so be it, but amen. God is holy. Because God is holy, God must love. He must. His holiness identifies his perfection. If he is not a God of love, he is not a God of perfection. Thus, he's not a God of holiness. Because he's holy, he is a God of love. So when she says that God visits his mercy on those who fear him, it's not saying that we've got to fear God and drum up some feelings for God, then God will give us his mercy. What she's saying is that here's the kind of relationship we can expect to have with God as we know him as his children. That God moves toward us and shapes us and makes us newer and newer as we grow in our fear of him. As we adopt a posture of need and dependence 
rather than sort of blurring in or bumping into God just when we need him, when we have jailhouse religion. It's important that we know that. She goes on to say this in verses 51 through 53. He, God, has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted uh, those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. Um, these are troubling words if, you, if you're rich. <laughs> um, and of course, in today's culture, you could make an argument that compared to the folks back then, all of us are rich, comparatively speaking. Uh, the Bible does not take aim um, at rich people and people who have power. But generally, throughout human history, when people have had power or they have had money, which is the same thing, they have mistreated those who did not have that. Historically speaking, there's no command in Scripture that we shouldn't be rich. There's a command to desire to be rich. Paul told Timothy that, don't desire to be rich. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Don't desire that. If God gives you the heavy stewardship of wealth, respect it. Because you are going to experience temptation to turn to depend on your wealth more than you will to Jesus. So make sure you hold your wealth loosely in your hands. But there's no mandate and there's no command in Scripture or statement in Scripture that having money is bad. It's not. Loving it is. But we see all through human history that people who have power have a tendency to abuse people. For the longest time, uh, colonialism in Africa made a complete mess of that continent and plunged untold millions of people into grief and pain and death. And yet in the wake of colonial, colonialism in, in Africa, in places like Zimbabwe, a person like Robert Mugabe becomes president and who for 30 years, the better part of 30 years, rules that country with an iron fist and is just as bloody as uh, colonialism sometimes was in that country. This is the kind of people that God has in mind when the scriptures talk about how those in authority and those on thrones will be taken down. But he's also talking about filmmakers who sexually harass and abuse people who are vulnerable. People who have wealth and power who exploit that wealth and power to hurt others. Rather than, and we're going to, at some point in the new year, I'm going to come back and do just a couple of more talks in Proverbs. And I want to talk about what Proverbs says gives on the full counsel of money. And one of the commands in Proverbs for those who have money and prosperity is that you better use it to serve the poor and the oppressed. You better use it. Those are verses I don't hear quoted very much by prosperity preachers for some interesting reason. So, uh, so this is what God is doing. So there's this great reversal that's taking place in all of human civilization when the Messiah comes. And you can label this great reversal under three categories. The first, the first uh, element of the great reversal that's taking place through Jesus is a moral reversal in which the proud will be scattered. And those who are humbled will be elevated. Jesus said this. He said the meek will inherit the earth. Not the power hungry. Not the rich. The meek. The meek will inherit the earth. And it doesn't matter what color you are. What background you come from. The meek are those 
who will rule in the new creation with Jesus, the meek, not people who love power. So people, there's this great moral reversal. And then there's a social reversal that takes place, that is taking place and will finally and fully take place at a certain point in the future when Jesus returns. And that social reversal, I, I, I mentioned a reversal I mentioned a moment ago, has to do with power structures. Power structures that systemically oppress people. They are going to be vanquished from this earth for all eternity. All eternity. People will not suffer because of unjust leadership or powerful people anymore. And then implicit in all of this is a spiritual reversal. Because remember, Mary's saying to fear God, fear him. He is holy. And because he's holy and we're called to fear him, fear him, fear him. And then she finishes with these words. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. And there it is again, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And we all know, as we've met in that last series that we just finished, that anyone who has their, puts their faith in Jesus becomes a son or a daughter of Abraham. And we are the people of God. We are the people of God. How does this happen? Um, if you're reading this, you're, you're, looking around, you're taking the Bible and comparing it to the newspaper, you're going, hmm, these don't add up. Because I'm seeing a lot of terrible things happen in our world. That, And I'm wondering, when is this stuff going to happen in Scripture? Um, I, I once heard someone, I forgot who it was, but someone said it this way. When you look at biblical prophecy, look at it like a mountain range. For instance, uh, Isaiah 11 talks about a time when there will be a root of Jesse. And that root of Jesse is speaking of the coming Messiah, Jesus, who was born in the line of David, Jesse being David's father. And this Messiah who will come will inaugurate this new kind of kingdom. And in this kingdom, it will be such that a lion and a lamb can lay down together. That a child can stick his or her hand into the hole of a dangerous poisonous snake and not be bitten or harmed. And yet we look at our world right now and we don't see this happening. Um, I want you to think about a mountain range. My wife is from beautiful Alberta, Canada. Alberta, Canada is on the western side of Canada. And it's way up north. I remember once when I was driving uh, from Minneapolis, where we lived, to Fargo, North Dakota, and we hung a right and went to Saskatchewan in Canada and took the QEW Highway across northern Canada. In the middle of the night, I looked over my right shoulder out the window, and I saw the great northern lights. It was incredible. I'd never seen that before. It was so awesome. But that's a long, long drive. And there's like every 50 or 60 feet, there's like three or four mule deer on the side of the road. And I'm like, oh my goodness, if they step out in front of my little Volkswagen Jetta, we're going to heaven. And so I, I drove with my knuckles white the entire time for 24 hours. We got there. And then, of course, I leave the car, step into my wife's driveway, and I see the great Rocky Mountains outside of her front door. You can step out of her front door and see the Rocky Mountains. In July, they are still snow-capped and grand. And I'm looking at these mountains, and when you're looking at them from that distance, they look 2D. They look like a painting. They look like they're all sort of standing in soldier formation right beside each other. Same depth, same height, all that. 
But when you drive into those mountains, they take on texture and a 4D-ness. I remember when I was first married and we were uh, honeymooning in Banff, Alberta, in the Canadian Rockies. And I was on a, it was we at a ski resort and I had my skis on and my poles and I was ready. I was all bundled up. I looked like that kid from a, a Christmas story. And I was on this ski lift heading up the mountain and it was a very, very cloudy day that day. And as we're heading up the mountain on this ski lift, we go through this, we go through these clouds and then we get above the clouds. That's how high these mountains are. We literally, the ski lift got us above the clouds. I'm watching the clouds like water uh, going down the drain. It was so fascinating. And as I'm looking down below me, I'm seeing just white when there should be a 50 or 60 foot drop to the tops of these towering pine trees. And as I'm going up this mountain, I look behind me and at shoulder level, it's, I saw sort of that, these mountains, but it was, they were all around me like I was in the middle of a ring. And as I'm looking down, I look down and I see white clouds below me and the mountains all peeking out of those clouds all around me. It felt like I was in a bowl of cereal. It was just like white milk and the edges of the bowl. All, it, was the, it was the strangest experience, one of the strangest experiences I've ever had, something I could never have anticipated. I never would have guessed that that morning I would have had that view. And that's what biblical prophecy is more like. If I were to walk from one of those mountains to the other mountain, it would take me a long, 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 long time. But sometimes when we read about prophecy in Scripture, it looks like it all happens one after the other. When Isaiah, when he spoke in Isaiah chapter 11, or Hannah, when she spoke in 1 Samuel chapter 2, they were seeing what they thought was going to happen real quick. And yet history has come to show us that Jesus is methodically nurturing the human race towards his desired end. And yes, there will be a moment when we can lay down beside an adder's hole and not be bitten by a snake. There will be a time when a lion will lay down with a lamb. There will be that time in the messianic kingdom at Jesus' second coming. But until then, Jesus is using people like us and Nick, and Haley, and others who simply are saying, Lord, let it be to me according to your word. Use me. Use me. There's nothing separating us from my friend who goes to Walmart every Sunday night and just walks up to people who look like they're hurting and says, can I pray for you? There's nothing separating us from stories like that. Nothing. There's no wall And if there is, it's just imaginary. God is using us. How do we become part of this story? We don't deserve to be number one. We don't deserve to be. God singularly finds us. He brings truth to bear on our lives. Our hearts come alive. I don't know why some people's hearts come alive and others don't when they hear the same sermon I do. I don't know that. I can't explain that. But there are those of us who have come to faith in Jesus that our hearts have come alive. God found us. He saved us. He raised us from the dead, seated us in the heavenly places with Jesus. And he calls us now in this milieu of human history, in this chaos, he calls us to be the hands and the feet of the Messiah. Mary was chosen by God, not because she was special. I'm sure she was a great gal. 
But there was nothing in her life that merited her deserving to carry Jesus more than any other woman on planet earth. God chose her. God deposited his seed inside of her. And God used her. And the Jesus that came out of her changed the world. This is what God wants to happen in all of our lives. That the Jesus who comes out of our life will change the world. Will we open our hearts to this? Will we? Beyond a hearty amen during a sermon, or so be it, will we open our hearts to this? When we think about Christmas and the season of Advent, let us not remain in nostalgia. Let's get down on the ground and let's walk. Jesus, I thank you for today. I thank you for your mercy. I thank you for your grace. I pray for all of those in our church who are suffering right now in sickness and disease. I pray that you would touch them and heal them. I pray, Lord God, for every heart in this room that you would stimulate faith and a conviction and sense of urgency to be used by you to lay our lives at your feet and say, God, use me like Hannah laid her son at the feet of you, O Lord God. And I pray, Jesus, that you would use us in such a way that those who do not know you in our spheres would come to know you well and love you the way that we do. In Jesus' name, amen. Before you leave, don't move, don't grab, gather your stuff. I want you to know that after every single service, I know we don't make a big to-do out of it a lot because we don't want it to be emotional. But if you are coming to a place where you are discovering that you are having developing affections for Jesus and you want to follow him, we've got folks that are up here that can talk with you. You can go to the community table in the back and say, hey, that's, this is what's happening to me. We can connect you with someone who can share with you what's going on put an arm around your shoulder, show you how to follow Jesus. You can sign up for water baptisms. And as you get water baptized and really mean it, knowing that your water baptism is a sign, not just a declaration to everyone that you belong to Jesus, but that you are part of the church of Jesus Christ, the people of God. And God wants to use you to advance his gospel. We are always available for those conversations. You can reach us all via email if you want to do it that way. You can tweet at us, although I'm not on that anymore. Um, some of our staff is. Any, I think we're pretty accessible. If you want to know how to follow Jesus, come find us. We will, make, we will walk with you through that. It, is, it would be our joy and privilege to do that. My dear friends, God bless you today. May God's grace and peace be with you in Jesus' name.